Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Anna Lindner, your host, and today we're going to be talking to Dr. Penelope Ingram about her book, Imperiled Whiteness, How Hollywood and Media Make Race in a Post-Racial America. Dr. Ingram is a distinguished teaching professor and an associate professor in the Department of English at the University of Texas at Arlington. She is the author of The Signifying Body, Towards an Ethics ethics of sexual and racial difference, and she has published widely in race, gender, and cultural studies. Penelope, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks, Anna. It's nice to be here. Yeah. So just getting started, um, thinking about what the center of this book is about. Talk us through why and how you're taking a convergence slash transmedia approach to the phenomenon you identify as imperiled whiteness during the current post-racial era. And I'm putting all of those in air quotes. (laughs) Um, Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that probably a good way to to sort of begin to understand the phenomenon of imperiled whiteness is to think about um, November 2016 and Trump's election. Um, I was sort of amazed, actually, at in the aftermath of the election by the the degree of head scratching and hand wringing that the um, pundits were engaging in. Um, but I was particularly concerned by sort of um, journalists and progressive news outlets like the New York Times and Vox and the Atlantic. And they seemed to attribute Trump's win to the Democrats' failure to attend to the white working class. Um, and I thought that that was curious because certainly BIPOC people and scholars who are interested in race and rhetoric understand, could see quite clearly that Trump was baiting, um, sort of, you know, engaging in, 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 in racial rhetoric and racist uh, baiting and attributing all kinds of horrible behaviors to minority groups. So it's odd to me that, that rather than recognizing the sort of genesis of his popularity in his racism and his sort of um, rhetorical, rhetorically racist appeals, it was interesting to me that whiteness became elevated. It became this sort of, you know, raison d'etre for his win. And I thought that that um, was sort of interesting to me because I think that that marks the moment where whiteness became something to embrace and discuss, regardless of your political leanings. Um, And I think that, you know, if we think about Obama's presidency, it was very clear that that, um, the post-race era that he, his presidency supposedly heralded um, was a fiction, um, and that we had more overt racism um, and racial attacks than perhaps we had had um, in decades previous. And I say overt, I, I'm not saying that there were more, I'm just saying there were more overt. Um, and so one of the things I look at in the book is in something I call the Obama to Trump era, the way that whiteness became a commodity that was a sort of exploitable by a variety of media outlets. And so to your question about the sort of transmedia approach, I'm interested in the way that not just the news media, but social media and entertainment media all participated in this sort of elevation of whiteness. And when I say the elevation of whiteness, I don't necessarily mean, I, I certainly don't mean the sort of sense of, of the sort of traditional elevation of whiteness, but rather the elevation of white victimization, um, which I see as sort of stemming from um, the hypervisibility of blackness during Obama's presidency. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I always harp on this, but the the mutual constitution of whiteness and blackness and the kind of relationship they have, the tension they have, the way that they make each other, uh, which obviously your book focuses on a lot because we can't really talk about whiteness and where it came from and why it is the way it is without talking about blackness. And 
white people's conceptions of blackness and then also black people's conceptions of whiteness, right? Which is fascinating. Um, and then going off of that, so how we're getting from the, <laughs> the very scholarly maybe approach to mutual constitutive nature of whiteness and blackness, you talk a lot about the colorblind racism, right? Which seems like a bit of an oxymoron or juxtaposition, but is true as, you know, scholars like Bonilla Silva have pointed out. Um, how did that contribute to the rise of these white identity politics and even white justice or justice for white people who feel like they have been wronged and now are imperiled? Um, particularly on the political right, but maybe, you know, not even just on the political right, more mainstreaming and even on the left as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. That's interesting. So I think that, um, and you're right, I mean, Eduardo Bonilla Silva, obviously, you know, his book, <laughs> Racism Without Racist, um, clearly sort of delineates the, 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 the sort of way in which whiteness is centered um, and centered, I think, covertly. Um, through colorblind, colorblindness, the rhetoric of colorblindness, which, of course, those of us, you know, who are interested in um, sort of racial rhetoric consider to be colorblind racism. Um, so I, I think that what I'm interested really is looking at the way in which, while it certainly does center whiteness, um, covertly, and, and just for, for the listeners, I mean, there's this idea that um, the sense that the concept of, of the post-racial, right, of colorblindness, it sort of levels the racial playing field, right? That race becomes something, it depend, depends on which critic you, you read. There are a couple of ways to conceive of it. Some people will say that race that race is no longer a thing, right? That we don't see race, that race is gone. Um, and others will say, others like um, Woody Doan will say that it's it's not that race is erased. <laughs> it's just that race becomes just sort of one position of many, right? It becomes an identity marker. And what I was interested in is the fact that uh, sort of a two-pronged approach here. So we know that when race is eliminated, then, of course, racism <laughs> becomes a sort of um, empty category for analysis. And so we can't attribute um, unequal distribution of resources and systemic and um, other f- sort of inequalities to racism because without race, racism is not a thing. And so that's that in that way, we see that centering of whiteness, that whiteness can somehow um, sort of excuse itself, right, from the sort of h- systemic um, ways in which um, BIPOC people have been um, treated and unfairly regarded on the basis of, of, of race and racism. Um, so, so that's on the one hand, you see this sense of like, oh, it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. We're past it. White people, you know, are excused. But what I'm sort of interested in is this idea too, and this is what, where I get into affective rather than structural racism, is this sense that for, for many whites, even though they might not have considered themselves to participate in systemic racism, they of course benefited from it, right? And so... In this rhetoric around imperiled whiteness, I was really interested in the way that if you take race out of the equation, then the sort of corollary advantages white people received from structural racism are gone, right? Or they're they're not gone, but they're perceived to be gone. And so there were some really interesting sociological um, studies and surveys done in, in um, during Obama's presidency, which showed that for many whites, they really felt that anti-whiteness was much more prevalent than anti-blackness. That during Obama's presidency, there was so much hype around black identity that white people were forgotten. And so I was, so for me then the idea of the post-race became this sense of like, so white people feel that without racism, Right. Even if, even if you know they don't, they're not participating in it, they have nothing, right? And so they're somehow at a disadvantage. So, in that sense, I was interested in the way in which whiteness then became a commodity, right? A way in which, if 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 it's okay to talk about race again, right? So if we're thinking about the sort of the Ashley Doan, Ashley Woody Doan idea about like it, race is is there, it's just not responsible <laughs> for for this sort of you know inequality. 
then it gave white people the opportunity to celebrate whiteness without being accused of um, the sort of neo-Nazi, you know, behaviors that lynching and KKK rallies, et cetera, that would have previously um, been sort of evoked in any celebration of whiteness. So whiteness became something that it was okay to talk about now. Um, so so, so that's a kind of two-prong. On the one hand, it was like, let's celebrate whiteness because we can, but also, oh my God, we better start defining whiteness because we're not benefiting anymore from our place atop the racial hierarchy. Right. And the kind of aha moment for me, I mean, this is something I guess I know, but your book does such a good job of describing kind of like this soft white power or the kind of white supremacist approximate version of whiteness that is not just, it can't be a directly tied to neo-Nazi kind of very overt white supremacy, but it is kind of this soft version that Trump just got in there and just exploited that and capitalized on that and just became the epitome of that while also being, you know, endorsing KKK and, you know, also doing a very overt kind of white supremacist stuff. But there are people who are able to support him, but not think of themselves as overtly white supremacists. And that is just, I didn't understand. I mean, I think a lot of us didn't understand that for so many years. Like, how can that be. But your your book describes how they kind of deal with that, his overt white supremacy, how that translates into their white supremacist approximate, I'm not a racist, again, tying into the structural and affective racism. Um, and I'm just, I was, yeah, I was very, very um, compelled by that part of the book. Thank you. I mean, I think one thing that to me that's so interesting is that I, you know, I think that, that, I mean, you know, there's obviously been many, it, it took a long time. So, you know, we had the, the whole sort of, let's talk about the white working class. That's the reason Trump got elected, even though, as the Southern Poverty Law Center tells us on day one in Trump's America, we had, you know, make America white again, graffiti, we had swastikas, we had, you know, women having their hijabs ripped off, we had dolls hanging by nooses in stairwells. And this is day one. So really, it's the day after he gets elected in November. So it's not really, he's not even really president yet. Um, So that's interesting to me that we still are having these, all of this discussion about the white working class when it's like, hello, look over here, it's pretty obvious what's going on. But then of course, after, I don't know, probably about a year, we started to see the sort of um, emphasis on race and racism, I think that um, I think that when Trump found it extremely profitable and extremely sort of rewarding his his overt racism, one thing that uh, that I mean you said it as well is a sense that you know people voted for him but said I don't I disagree I disagree with his racism and his and his you know his his mannerisms and his objectionableness however <laughs> there are all these other things but one of the things that I was interested in is the ways in which the media so all of that that, that convergent media right actually were cultivating the soft identity politics right this sense here that that you know in the Obama era whites somehow became irrelevant that we somehow lost lost ground. Um, and so therefore we really need to sort of buck up and, and refine ourselves. And there was something about this colorblind moment, this post-racial moment that seemed to allow for that. And I think that that's why Trump was successful because even though he was sort of speaking the overt racist rhetoric, we were consuming, and this is sort of, I guess, the heart of the book, consuming these stories about whites in peril and, um, you know, whites in peril. And, and then, but, but not not sort of fading away, but in fact becoming victorious <laughs> again. So it was this sort of like um, sort of recuperative narrative of whiteness. And that, of course, was the bombast that Trump was selling on the stump, right? The whole make America great again, of course, I mean, we all knew it really meant make America white again. And I think that that's why it was so shocking to me that 
<laughs> that the journalists were like, wait, what? No, <laughs> it's clearly racist. Like, how can you not see that this is racist? So, um, but, but again, just once, once you start foregrounding white disenfranchisement, in the progressive media, then it becomes absolutely acceptable to, to always talk about white disenfranchisement. Yeah. And, and you do point out that these media, again, up across multiple media, transmedia approach, are contributing to um, both talking about and creating franchises. So you're looking at particular media franchises that are appealing to both the racist and even the anti-racist communities, um, which is fascinating because they're kind of hiding under this veneer of progressivism, which again is associated with post-racial, post-blind or post-racial race-blind ideologies. Um, And, that's why it's so successful because it's not overt enough for us to really even realize that we're being, we're consuming a message of, you know, maybe soft white power or imperiled whiteness in terms of threatened whiteness uh, in progressive packages, as you say. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting as, as um, a little anecdote here. So I started this, I mean, I, I started, as I say in the book, I started writing this in January of 2017 when I was so irritated by these reports about disenfranchised white people. But really, um, I I began thinking about these issues with the release of the, in in, uh, um, the Planet of the Apes reboot. And so I was very familiar with Eric Green's work on the original Planet of the Apes series, which he published in 1998, his book, Planet of the Apes, American Myth. And it's so interesting because... You know, I, I'm here. I am in the theater watching the Planet of the Apes because I, you know, with my kids and my husband, and it's you know, it's great. Like it's great. I loved it. I was like, yes, Caesar. Wow, you know, this mocap. It's so good. Everything is good. There's none of these, you know, it's not no latex masks, no stilted, you know, um, terrible men in blackface appearance. Um, I couldn't, even though there was a sort of, you know, it, it seemed to be so progressive and, and Caesar is sympathetic and, and all the apes are and they're, and they're abused and we, 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 we rally for them. It was interesting to me, as I say in the book, how this franchise would be resurrected during Obama's presidency when, when you know, I mean, I'm dating myself. My students don't seem to know this. They, they, they don't think that there's a- any racial um sort of subtext in the original Planet of the Apes at all. But I mean, you know, I grew up in the 70s and I can tell you that everybody knew there was racial subtext in Planet of the Apes. You know, the, the TV show, the films, everything. And of course, Eric Green talks about it, right? That that original Planet of the Apes movie was in fact, um, you know, a sort of call to arms. Um, and then, and it was a sort of wake up call, if you like, for Americans about sort of um, racism in this country, but then subsequent ones were were quite um, conservative and, and really working against the sort of um, progressive narrative that the first movie um, sort of outlined. And so I was watching this and I'm like, okay, yeah, this is good, but what is going on? Why are we resurrecting the planet of the apes when, when you know, and as, and, and as you know, in the book, I talk about all the ways in which Obama and Obama's presidency was associated with the planet of the apes. I mean, that was the sort of the, these memes were, 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 were constantly being reproduced on the, on the, um, in right-wing media. And I was like, this is surely not, you know, an accident. And one of the things that that's important to note is I'm not suggesting that, you know, um, the, 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 directors and producers and writers of the reboot were necessarily engaging in some kind of anti-Obama media. But I I do think that it's impossible to watch those shows and not, and and again, it's not, we don't watch these media in isolation. So this is central to the transmedia analysis, right? We're watching Planet of the Apes and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, so Rise, Dawn, and War, in the midst of all of this sort of... um, political mayhem and um, politicking about Obama as an ape, right? So so even if the film itself doesn't demonstrate or delineate any of those associations, we can't divorce the context 
you know, from the product. And and that's that to me, that's central to that transmedia approach. It goes both ways, right? The political environment informs our viewing um, and it and it changes, you know. So if 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 somebody were to watch Rise of the Planet of the Apes in ten years, they would have a completely different viewing of it. I would argue, right? Um, but that context is is really what determines our reception. You know, and this is just sort of classic media studies, right? Sort of John Fisk, Stuart Hall, Herman Gray. But it informs our reception of of these um, of these ideas, and so we can't you know, we can't unsee it. And, you know, as I talk about in 2014, when Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is um, released, it's it's in, 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 you know, right after Trayvon Martin, right? It's during um, Eric Garner and Michael Brown. I mean, you can't not see Black Death when you're watching Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, because those apes have, you know, historically been associated with African-Americans. And here they are being lawless and shooting up cops in these movies. And so it became very, to me, very problematic that that these franchises were sort of, um, or that franchise specifically was being um, reintroduced, shall we say, during Obama's presidency. Right. And again, from a media standpoint, the idea that, you know, even if you want to take this media text and make it into something that is seemingly progressive, you might not be able to because of original context and or no matter how much you try to imbue the apes with this kind of righteous, you know, I think I study, you know, enslavement in the night in the night in the 19th century. And this kind of, you know, revolution, uprising, justified action against the white overlords who have enslaved people for centuries um, that, yeah, we aren't going to be able to get away from the images of Black Lives Matter protesters um, who were, you know, inciting protests as a result of these murders. Um, And that kind of, like you said, subtext, uh, those images are going to be associated no matter what we uh, try to do. And that's, we're never going to be able to get away with that, get, get away from that. And that's, that's fascinating. Um, and related to that, the imperiled kind of the white masculine element of this. So white masculinity, which as you very rightfully point out, it's not just white men who are kind of being pucked sucked into this, pulled into this, um, but also even minoritized men um, who are being pulled into the imperiled white masculinity um, ideology. Could you talk to us about kind of the gender aspect of this and potentially using The Walking Dead as a case study? Sure. So, you know, one of the things I think that, um, so so if we go back to this idea of the hard and soft identity politics, right, and if we consider the way that, um, you know, sort of political theorists like, you know, Michael Omi and Howard Winant and, um, you know, Benia Silva and others have talked about this sort of um, code words, right, and dog whistles and that those kind of, they were sort of the, the traditional sort of appeals, right, the hidden appeals, the sort of, you know, <laughs> George Bush's, George W, sorry, George H. Bush's, you know, use of Willie Horton, right? This whole sense of like, you know, the super predator um, subtext. And of course, with Trump, we see this sort of overt, like stating, it's it's not, it's not, there's no subtext, it's just saying it out loud. And, you know, everyone's sort of, you know, putting their hand over their mouth and, and voting. Um, but so it's interesting to me how, so much of what Trump was um, telegraphing was performative, right? I mean, to this day, I mean, I don't, don't really care to analyze his motives, but to this day, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced he, he doesn't, he's not really an ideologue. Like, he doesn't really care, right? He's just, he's just going with um, the votes, right? And he, he is a performance. And so I was so interested in the way that he cultivated and um, stoked white performativity. And I, I was really interested in that because if you think about 2017, I will, I'll get to The Walking Dead, it's a long answer. But if you, get, you think about 2017, right? You think about Charlottesville and you think about 
all of those, all of those, you know, men marching, um, protesting the Robert E. Lee removal, right, in Charlottesville, the statue of Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville. And I mean, they're wearing matching outfits. <laughs> you know, they have white uh, polo shirts and khakis, or they're wearing, you know, the 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 sort of Fred Perry, and they're holding their tiki torches. And it's 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 sort of bizarre. It, it's in itself, it's almost like it's so televisual, uh, you know. And and it seems to me that with this trans with transmedia, with social media, with the kind of um, sort of radicalizing specifically of young white men on social media, that there is such a performative element to it. It's it's not just taking the message and believing it. It's telegraphing to an audience, right, to your peers that you are a member of this cult, let's just say, right? Um, so when I was thinking about the way that white masculinity became a performance during the Trump um, be, well, it came became overt. I think it was there in Obama, obviously, in the Obama era, but it became somehow, you know, free, freed and released in the Obama era. Um, I, I was really interested in how that correlated with fandom in um, sort of media studies, right? Like how fans um, engage with media products, right? How they, you know, they'll go to a con and they'll dress up and they will, um, you know, sort of participate in certain discourses around, you know, their, their desired object. And so it was interesting to me when I was thinking about, say, you know, the Proud Boys, right, and um, like Enrique Tarrio, and I'm thinking it's so interesting how here we have an Afro-Cuban who is the head of the Proud Boys, which is this white supremacist organization, and he's not white, and he doesn't, but he wants to, you know, reinforce this concept of Western chauvinism and the the importance of whiteness, but he himself is not white, and, and it seemed to me that that's sort of the missing piece here. That I mean, I mean. Those of us who study race know that there is no white anyway, right? But it is, it's just a sort of a, an identity, a racialization. We produce whiteness, we produce blackness. But this idea here that even within this, this such a binarized, such a dichotomous relationship, right, where there's this whiteness and this blackness, that somehow people on the sort of wrong side of the racial binary could could perform whiteness and be accepted. Um so I found that very interesting in terms of the politics of the alt-right, um, because if you read the manifestos and you read the, the sort of credo, that would not be allowed, right? So it's almost, so, so it doesn't matter what you look like, it's what, what you say, right? What you, what you claim to believe. Um, and of course, that's, that's completely crazy because, you know, you're walking down the street, it doesn't matter what you, <laughs> what you say or what you believe, it's how you're going to be profiled. Um, but okay, so so that to me that was a sort of performative aspect that I thought was peculiar to white masculinity, even though it's quote unquote white masculinity. It's not even white presenting. I guess that's what I would say. It's becomes it becomes a sort of mirage of whiteness. And then The Walking Dead to me was fascinating because so The Walking Dead airs two days before the midterms in 2010, when the Tea Party, of course, swept. Um, Congress, right? And so it was the introduction of the Tea Party, which of course was conservative, um, hyper-conservative Republican wing. And it essentially, uh, and they were anti-immigrant, they were anti-everything. But it's interesting to me how I I was very curious whether this sort of representation of this backwoods Georgia post-apocalyptic event, right, where white men have to essentially fight back against these invading hordes of zombies, somehow resonated with this idea of the sort of, you know, immigration and the soft borders, it's, you know, purportedly soft borders, et cetera. Um, And one thing about that I thought was interesting about that is, and this goes to the idea of post-racial, what I call post-racial posturing, is that, you know, and people always say this, they're like, but The Walking Dead has so many, um, it has a diverse cast, right? And so what do you mean it's all about white men? And I think what's interesting, if you, season two of The Walking, I'm sorry, episode two, season one of The Walking Dead, it's called Guts, and that's where you have Michael Rooker, um, 
saying the most outrageously racist things that I've heard on television in my lifetime. And, you know, he's, he's in this battle with this, um, with this, um, black antagonist. And although he eventually gets schooled by Rick, you know, our sort of gentle white sheriff, at that point he was gentle, (laughs) we get a sense here actually that it's the airing of those sentiments, even if they are contained by the program, right? Even if they're contained in the episode, it's the airing of them. It's the venting. It's the feeling that he, his, his sort of vitriolic racism had a platform to me, uh, was particularly interesting that in this moment it was suddenly okay. So it's against 2010. So it's, two years into Obama's presidency. And it becomes this opportunity to sort of air white grievances, even though, again, the, 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 the showrunners will say, no, no, we, you know, we weren't endorsing Merle's views. We were simply, uh, you know, he, he was put in his place. Well, he wasn't because the fans loved him. And he came back and he came back and he came back. And so, and then he became the spokesman for NASCAR. So, I mean, it was sort of like white masculinity is all over The Walking Dead. And even the women in even the women of color in The Walking Dead exhibit that kind of performative whiteness, which I think is sort of, you know, kind of goes back to the, um, the Enrico Tario, Enrique Tario kind of problem. So. Yeah. And the idea of whiteness as a commodity that can be bought with social capital and transferred and negotiated, manipulated, et cetera, uh, taken on, I think is important. And you obviously do a very deep dive into each of those interesting characters who are either not white or not male or who are either who might be not white or not male or both and who are kind of still have these very complex characterizations that ultimately still support this kind of subtle, you know, post-racial overt whiteness and white masculinized messaging. And I think that's really important for people who look at media representations to understand is that, oh, there, diversity, representation, boom, end of story. It's just not sufficient. And um, yeah, you give us the specifics of that, which is great. Mm-hmm. And I mean, one of the things Christian Warner talks about in terms of colorblind casting, and she does this, of course, with all of the Shondaland shows, is that you know, it, it, having diverse casting does not, you know, make for diverse scripts, right? You you can have sort of you know visual um, diversity without a diversity of experience, right? And so we we can't just assume that having black and brown faces on our screen is going to sort of you know create any kind of understanding of, you know, minoritized experience. It's just, it's just, you know, experiences. <laughs> They're not monolithic either. So, um, yeah, I just, I, I find it so, you know, interesting that, um, you know, and, and of course, you know, at the end, the later seasons, Michonne marries Rick, or they get together. I don't think they actually get married. But and it's this idea like, oh, great. Well, it's an interracial relationship. So problem solved as though, <laughs> as though nothing, you know, as though all the other black people that had been killed and beaten in the show um, that were, were considered as expendable as the zombies or more so were not, you know, was was irrelevant, I guess. Yeah. And that is going to always be used as kind of the epitome of, yes, smoothing everything over uh, post-racialism in a package right there, in a racial marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I'm also interested in how all of that is true and it remains true for all, I think it's 12 seasons. I think I, I, think I tapped out around season six and never watched it again. Um, a back. lot of people tapped out in season six. That was the, that was the, I, unfortunately I had to keep watching. It, yes. <laughs> right. Right. You were like, this is my media object must That's continue. Right. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I just know this through you now and the very small things I've consumed about the show since I stopped watching. Um, you say that all of those things remain true. They're still there, but there's this kind of interesting shift at the very end, maybe like the last couple of seasons where, again, still imperiled white masculinity, it's not necessarily changing, but that gets tempered a little bit. And there's kind of this ambivalence that I thought was really interesting. And that's in your very, the conclusion of your book 
um, if you want to talk about that in the context of the political moment that was occurring kind of, I think this might've been 2020, 2021, because the season, the last season was in 2022, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, it's interesting to me. So, and then we see this in, in Planet of the Apes too, with War of the Planet of the Apes, War for the Planet of the Apes. The prepositions get very tricky in that series. Um, so, you know, when I think about, when I think back to that sort of, that, that moment after Trump's win, right? And, and everyone, not everyone, a lot of loud voices were saying, what, how could this happen? You know, um, and it was, it, it, it seemed to take a really, really long time for sort of, I would say those in the mainstream, right? To, and, and, you know, probably his supporters, some supporters too, or people who voted for him to realize like, wow, this is bad, right? This is bad. I mean, and I'm talking about white people, right? <laughs> because of course, people of color knew it was bad <laughs> from the beginning, but it became this sense of like, oh, this is way worse. Like this is going to have um, lo- lasting effects on our democracy. And of course, I mean, you know, January 6th, <laughs> 2021, I mean, it didn't, We it, it, the, the hits kept coming, right? You know, as I say in my introduction, it's like, this book was sort of impossible to complete because every time I think I was finished, I was like, oh no, here's another insurrection. <laughs> oh no, here's another effect of Trump Trumpism. Um, so, you know, I'm again, I mean, I, I as I go through these franchises, I look at the ways in which they engage in this soft form of identity politics. Um, and again, I'm not ascribing intention to them, but I'm saying that we can't view them independent of their context. And specifically, I look at those flashpoints of DACA, BLM, and gun control, and I look at the ways in which um, the sort of flashpoints, the hot button issues that were circulating in the media were somehow being worked through, right? And I felt like, you know, it's not the job of media to be responsible, right? It's the job of media, entertainment media anyway, to entertain. And that certainly, I think, was what they were doing. But I did find it interesting as things got progressively worse that that season 10 of The Walking Dead, I think it was season 10 now, essentially it sort of attempted to really pull back because in the, in the, in the, in the character of Negan, right, which is, that might've been when you stopped watching. That's when a lot of people stopped watching because it was this sort of, he was an absolute tyrannical dictator with his, you know, um, barbed wire wrapped bat. And, you know, he, he, he beat the crap out of some loved characters um, and killed them. And, and I think that fans really started to notice and, and to call out Negan for his Trump-like behavior. And there was a lot of commentary about Negan as Trump. And, you know, um, Jeffrey Dean Morgan himself was horrified by, by that uh, comparison, interestingly. But, but I think that at some point, as viewers continued to sort of um, – peel off that the, that we see um, this sort of attempt to in a way right the boat and so it became this this sort of continual degradation of our characters that the heroes that people had identified with sort of became we begin to, we began to see the senseless um, the senselessness of the violence the effects of the kind of um, sort of rhetorical attacks. And, and again, I mean, you know, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it certainly became an impossible to watch that and not see how different and how nihilistic suddenly the violence became. And we look at Alpha, um, the Samantha Morton character. So she's playing the head of the whispers. I mean, that was just crazy. They're dressing up like, like zombies. They're putting zombie skins on basically. And then they're just walking around saying, you know, I can't remember what their phrase was, something like we are nothing or (laughs) we believe in nothing. And it was for me as a sort of, you know, interpreter of a long time interpreter of this show, it it seemed to be impossible not to, to, not to interpret that as, as sort of this Trump supporters and this kind of believing in nothing, but just slavishly following the lead of a leader who really didn't believe in anything either. Right. Um, so I think that to me, that was interesting. And, and in the case of War for the Planet of the Apes, I mean, that to me is a very overt commentary on on Trump. I mean, you know, Woody Harrelson's character of the colonel. I mean, he looks like a neo-Nazi. Um, you know, they're, they're the, the sort of um, 
you look at the mise-en-scene inside the prison, there are these tagged flags that look like neo-Nazi flags. It seems to me to be a quite an obvious um, sort of expose of the kind of madness. But both of them are engaging in this sort of thoughtless, slavish following right, of leaders, of leadership. And that's, of course, what, what was happening, right? And, and part of it is not even people anymore. It was the Republican Party, right, slavishly following Trump and, and, and you know, just for votes, so. Right, and now we're in this weird moment where, you know, he's just breaking relationships with everyone and obviously facing a lot of criminal charges and just... We'll see what happens next um, with leadership in the Republican Party, because obviously there's several people who kind of want to take his place as that figurehead and that kind of person who inspires that blind obedience. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, of course, you know, and and I mean, I probably will continue to, to work on this because look, look at the door that he opened. I mean, you know, we never could have had a Ron DeSantis if we hadn't had a Trump, you know. Um, it's so interesting. And of course, in, in many ways, Ron DeSantis is much more dangerous <laughs> than Trump, uh, though they're both equally dangerous, but in, in the sense of, um, you know, I mean, I, I do, I do, th- I do think that we sort of jumped in very quickly to this. Um, many, many people jump very quickly into the Trump Trumpism without really understanding <laughs> the long-term effects on our democracy and, and on our political system. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that transitional period that you talk about in that t- in the book, kind of middle of Obama into Trump, and now obviously dealing with the aftermath kind of, yes, I, I, it's definitely this trajectory that we are now on. I, I mean, one thing I think is really interesting, though, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, politics or politics, but, but also if we think about imperiled whiteness, I'm not, that hasn't gone away though. And that's interesting that that is still a really salient, um, uh, sort of, you know, means by which politicians can muster support. And, you know, and, and, you know, in the book I talk about how in part of it, it was that hyper visibility, like of, of, you know, with, with this sense of the post race, it was like, oh, let's have all of this sort of, you know, um, black cultural products, which was great. But then it became this idea of white people like, well, what about us? What about us? We're missing out. And so it seems to me that, 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 that's what frightens me is that the sort of imperiled whiteness is not going back in the box. Right. And of course, imperiled whiteness simply <laughs> means that white people want to be back on top, right? It's not like that they're, they're in no way are they in a deficit situation. <laughs> they're still structurally, I mean, structural racism still exists, but that affective racism, um, you know, all of those, all of those polls of the people that voted for Trump said that they really felt that anti-white bias was on the rise. Yeah. And that, you know, whiteness is predicated upon that feeling and whiteness cannot accrue the meanings and the power and the privilege and the capital and the et cetera and the dominance that it has accrued without that that sense of sense of imperilment and that sense of, you know, just complete <laughs> I yeah, to be white is to be socialized to be blind. I mean, we just are so blinded to it and then have to spend an, a lifetime kind of unveiling and unlearning. And um, I started when I was a teenager and it's going to be for the rest of my life. And um, it's, I think about it every day and it's still just so, it's designed to be hidden from us and it's, it's so hard to become privy to that. Um, While also, you know, dealing with the fact of your whiteness, like, like you said, you're going to walk down the street and you you will be racialized and that will be the way that you are perceived. And that's not Mm -hmm. going to change. That's right. I mean, it sort of goes back to Fanon, right? You know, the whole idea that the sort of gaze, the racial gaze, it's like, you can't, he couldn't escape it. Right. And so it's, 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 um, you know, it's, it's interesting. And that's why performative whiteness to me is so fascinating. Right. Um, and, and also that crossover, right. So of course we look at the sort of extremists that, you know, the, the radicalized white men on social media, the ones responsible for, you know, 
um, all of the the hate crimes. Um, it, it's interesting how how so much of that is a performance, having to telegraph, having to say, "I'm going in, I'm taking over, I'm doing this," and and you know, as you know, I start the book talking about the the pandemic and the ways in which the pandemic became this sort of media event and how it produced in us this sort of sense of, of that we were all trapped and. I, I really see that as feeding in and some of the programming in the pen, like the Tiger King, again, here we have this white man who's, you know, determined not to be taken down by his white rival, white female rival. And then we have Waco. I mean, why are we bringing Waco back <laughs> in the middle of the pandemic? Because, you know, let's have some white men under attack by the federal government, right? It's, 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 it's interesting to me the way the media will participate in and curate, really curate for us that sense of um, white victimization. But, but I, I do think it's important to state is that it's a two-pronged thing, right? It's, it wouldn't work if it was just sort of, you know, this sort of pathetic whiteness that whites are victims. It, it, it can't work that way. It's whites are victimized, but whites will rally, right? Like it's whites recover, because there's something about um, whiteness that is sort of tied to an American identity of freedom and 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 the frontier, right? We we won't be we won't be um, taken, and I think that's um, absolutely central to this messaging. Yeah, and that's that that kind of very paradoxical. <laughs> that paradox is at the center of white identity, definitely, um, and will continue to be exploited as such. Um, and you briefly, you know, said that you're still thinking about this and still going to write about this. Um, what, what are you doing now in terms of, um, either imperiled whiteness? Are you going to pick up that notion and talk about even what's happened in the last, you know, year with affirmative action and DeSantis and Florida and, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you asked me that, Anna, because I live in Texas and the Texas and I teach at a public institution and the Texas legislature has now essentially abolished DEI offices. There are there was a bill, you know, um, on the floor banning critical race theory and perhaps writing a book called Imperiled Whiteness was not the, the most strategic move for a, an academic in Texas. Um, but it, it is interesting, you know, I, I, I kept thinking I was done with this book, as I said, and it, I couldn't, it wasn't done because even even in I thought okay Biden's president now right we're done Trump is done no 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 not done so I I don't know I mean it's just kind of gonna I guess depend on what happens but I I I think that the 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 calculus is a little different this time I think people are much more aware of Trump I'm not even sure Trump is anybody really wants Trump um, other than his diehard supporters. But of course, you know, this, this idea of the no labels, third party is very uh, disturbing, but also interesting because I'm, I'm, I have to wear two hats. I have to, I have to wear kind of the political media hat, which is interesting. How will this play out? What, what, what are the repercussions of these kinds of platforms? But then I have to wear the, I'm a citizen and a voter and I, and I'm furious hat. So it's, it's, it's kind of a bifurcated existence. Um, but I am interested in seeing what will happen. I mean, you know, obviously I look at these three, these three franchises, Star Trek, Planet of the Apes and The Walking Dead. But, you know, as I say in the book, I mean, you could, you could look at reality TV. Like it, it doesn't, it's, it's not, I'm interested, was interested in science fiction specifically because of that progressive element. Right. Um, you know, science and speculative fiction often sort of um, markets itself as this sort of progressive, you know, n- you know, all all worlds, no boundaries. Um, and but again, as I say, those tropes of contagion, animality, and monstrosity were repackaged in these sort of ways that troubled me because they have done such historically racist work in the past. Um, but you know. I, and I think too, when I think about like 2012, I think about like Honey Boo Boo or Duck Dynasty. That's 2012, right? So that's the beginning of Obama's second term. But you can watch those programs and know what you're watching, right? You know you're watching um, this. You could, even if you're holding your nose and laughing, you're still thinking this is about white grit, right? This is about it. Um, well, 
Duck Dynasty is a bit misleading, but you know, ostensibly it's about, you know, white working class people. And then it becomes, but you know what you're getting sort of thing. But with these, these other programs, and again, not just, not just these franchises, but plenty of other programs, comedies, you don't necessarily know what you're watching until you sort of think to yourself, huh, that's curious. That message is being reproduced and peddled over and over. So I guess to answer your question, this long-winded way. Um, I'm interested in looking at other kinds of programming and seeing whether, has there been a shift? Has there been a change? Are we still reproducing these things? Um, You know, obviously I saw that moment, um, that moment in sort of, you know, 2020, 2021, where we were turning that corner, where it seemed like the entertainment media was being critical of the kind of messaging. Um, But I don't know if that's going to continue or not. Right. And even if it does continue to be critical to a degree, it will be in service of entertainment, like you said, and in in service of capital and in service of power and money and influence. Yeah. Um, And the myth of the elite liberal Hollywood, it just kills me. You know, people are like, oh, Hollywood is so well. It's like, well, are they though? (laughs) Are they really that liberal? I don't know. (laughs) They're too aligned with the power structures to ever be fully, you know, they, Mm -hmm. they will be subsumed to the money. Yeah. Ultimately, always. And that's why black creatives are so important. You know, the work that black creatives do, because they really, because, I mean, even though, of course, I, I think that black creatives are, are um, for, for a number of reasons, are, are much more um, sort of pressured by the neoliberal marketplace, right? Just in terms of opportunities, et cetera. But I do think that it's it's so important to have those have those those voices, right, that, that speak out. And Jordan Peele, obviously, is a, a big... Um, an important voice in that way, but he now has the capital. See, that's the thing. You have to have the capital to be able to engage. So, right. And how much did it take him to get there? Uh, yeah. Years, right. Years right. and years of producing and creating and all the other things he had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, the, the idea of reality TV, I think is very interesting. Um, and hopefully either you're able to do that work or someone else is able to do that work or both. Um, the question of, yeah, the academic in places like Texas, but really everywhere who are in the institution and where the DEI and affirmative action and everything else is being gutted, I think is a continuing issue. Um, so hopefully maybe we'll, (laughs) I don't know what'll happen, but I hope you're able to do that work. Um, and I I look forward to that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I will definitely be reading that when that comes out in several oh, years. <laughs> if I survive it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we're all still here. Um, well, thanks so much for talking. Um, Thank you. And I really, really enjoyed the book. It's excellent. And oh, anyone thanks, who Hannah. is, yeah, anyone who's interested in media studies, science fiction, speculative fiction, uh, or race, or any intersection, politics, <laughs> all should read this. So um, thanks so much for talking today. I appreciate it. Thank you.